My name is Shelly Harding. I'm 55 years old. In 1992, I was abducted by Todd Allen Reed, the forest park killer, and I am the one that got away. Yes, this is why I issued the trigger warning because that is one of the most vile things I've ever read in my career of talking about true crime. Honestly, that story is making me very emotional. I'm going to take a moment to just kind of debrief, let out some emotions, and I'll be right back. Before we jump into the terrifying all true crime story of the Forest Park killer otherwise known as Todd Allen Reed and the exclusive interview with Shelly Harding, I want to say hi, my name is Ethan and for the next while we'll be taking a headfirst dive into the dark corners of the world the media tends to avoid. The mission of the Crime Brought to Light podcast is to talk about any and every case no matter how dark, dirty, or disgusting. Also hello to my Spotify and Apple as well as my YouTube people. I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Those of you listening on Spotify or Apple, if you are a picture person like myself, jump on over to YouTube, same name, Crime Brought to Light, because I am done, D-O-N-E, with the audio-only documentaries. We are now having pictures. My Instagram is Crime Brought to Light, and I would love to have you guys jump over there. Give me a follow, because not only do I share my life on there, but I also show new and additional true crime stories. Today's sponsors are brought to you by... No one. A few months ago, I had to make a really hard decision. Number one, work a full-time job, or two, pour in my time to talk about true crime stories and bring them to light. I'm here right now, which means I chose number two, but that leads me into the next thing and saying that if you want to support me, please consider supporting me by becoming a member today. It's just $3. And by joining me, you get early access to every video, the ability to comment stories that you would like me to talk about next time. And three, I am a firm believer in giving honor when honor is due. And because of that, if you become a member, I will display your name at the end of every single video to show who is supporting me. That is my spill, so grab a soft blanket, your favorite snack and drink, and let's dive right in. The homeless population in Portland, Oregon is roughly around 7,500 individuals. In 1999, those facing the struggle of experiencing homelessness not only had to worry about where their next meal was coming from or the place they were going to sleep that night, but they also had to worry about if the place they were staying in was going to ensure they would wake up safely the next morning. Todd Allen Reed was given the name the Forest Park Killer and was known for targeting workers and those facing homelessness. What people don't know is those living on the street are more at risk of getting unalived by evil people because they are harder to identify or trace. They have no address, no close contact with family, and usually not even a driver's license. Before we get to the tragic year of 1999, we need to rewind to May 22nd of 1967. The setting is in a hospital located in Portland, Oregon. Ronnie Thomas was seconds away from meeting her baby boy. She squeezed her husband for only nine days hand, Marine Alfred Thomas, and from the perspective of Ronnie's life, she underwent several big life changes in less than two weeks. Not only did she just get married nine days prior, but she was about to not only have to meet her needs, but her new baby boy's needs. After what felt like hours, a sharp cry filled the 
hospital room, and that is when Todd Allen Thomas was born. The doctors quickly gave the stressed out mother and father reassuring news that they now have a healthy baby boy. Fast forward a few years later, Ronnie and Maureen began having troubles in their marriage. They would argue multiple nights throughout the week and eventually had one last ditch effort to save their marriage having another baby. As much as I would love to dog on people who think that's going to save their marriage, it happens more times than it doesn't, I feel like. People get in this mindset that a baby is going to fix everything because who could not love a precious baby boy or girl? Newsflash, that does not work. Shortly after Todd's brother was born, the couple divorced in 1971. Ronnie was determined to find love, especially considering that she had been married so soon. As someone who personally lives in the Bible Belt, I'm not sure if it's the same way for Portland, Oregon, but for us, I had a lot of people in high school that when they became pregnant, they shortly got married before they gave birth. I'm assuming somewhere in the Bible it says that if you get married before having a baby, it somehow undoes the sin of having sex before marriage. I'm not really sure, but in the South, it just makes it right to get married before you have a baby. And Honestly, I'm not blaming people who do this. I think it saves them a lot of judgment, especially if they live in a smaller community. So I in no way want to come across as I'm blaming them. I just think it's ridiculous that society has created this idea that getting married before having a baby immediately changes everything when it could cause more harm to not only the spouses, but also the children. Shortly after her divorce, Ronnie started dating and eventually married Robert Reed, who then adopted Todd and his brother, thus changing their last name to Reed. However, the pair then divorced when Todd was 12, but he still kept his last name. It's not necessarily stated in any of the sources I researched, but I'm very curious as to what the story is with Todd's first father, his original biological father, especially considering that the stepfather, Robert Reed, when he came into the family, most stepparents do not go through with adopting the children and even going as far as changing their last names. I'm really curious as to what the dynamic was with Maureen and Ronnie and the children. Even though it is extremely odd to me, there are no sources that really go into a deep dive in Todd's younger years of life, though I feel like that's very important and might shed some light as to why Todd became the brutal murderer he is known as today. I've said it once before and I will say it again, people are not born as killers, they are raised into being them. For example, pitbulls. People love to say that pitbulls are aggressive breeds, but it is not the breed that makes them aggressive, it is the way their owner raises and trains them. I've met so many pitbulls that are nice, loving, and wouldn't hurt a fly. I personally feel it goes for the same as human beings. Now let me be clear, do I think that everyone who has had a hard upbringing is going to be a brutal murderer? Absolutely not. I am simply just stating that a child is extremely impressionable until the age of 12, and by then, from Todd's perspective, he has experienced two divorces, doesn't even go into contact with his biological father anymore, and changes his last name. And if you guys are familiar with how a divorce can affect a child's upbringing, imagine going through two. Let me be clear, I'm not trying to shed some sympathy towards Todd or the crimes that he later would commit. I'm just trying to shed some light onto the situation to let you you guys know that people are not born as they're raised into being them. My opinion though. Todd's ex-stepfather Robert Reed even told reporters quote, Todd was a little standoffish. He went from having a dad to not having a dad and I think he took that hard. End quote. By the time Todd was 14, he was already a classified 
offender. Yes, I did not even know that was possible at the age of 14. At this point, the system had now stepped in and he was put in a residential program for his crimes against children. After close examination, he was later deemed as not dangerous and sent back home to live with his mother and brother. I want to be clear that I'm using the words close examination very loosely as I disagree. By the time Todd was 19, he had met a woman with the name of Gail Bennett in 1986. The pair started dating shortly after meeting, but let me add a little bit of information. When Gail met Todd, she was 15 years old. 15. Hi, hello. She is a freshman in high school and he's already graduated. I don't care what anyone says, a 15-year-old who is going through emotional and physical body changes should not be dating a 19-year-old man. When I was 15, I would struggle to decide if I should spend my summer vacation playing Minecraft or Legos, not figuring out how I should make my relationship work with a 19-year-old. And don't even get me started on the whole BS remark of, well, times were different back then. Back then, a 33-year-old could date a 12-year-old because that was just accepted. Don't even feed me that crap. Just because it was more accepted in society for a 30-year-old to date a 12-year-old does not mean that it makes it right. End rant. Let's continue. After dating a little over two years, Todd and Gail got married. She was 17 at the time and he was 21. And I'm going to leave it at that. The newlywed couple didn't have as much money as what couple who were just married does. Instead, of getting a well-paying job, Todd would break into homes and load up a big bag that reminds me of the present bag Santa carries. They would fill the bags with food items and of course wine, because what kid doesn't want to drink? Their living situation was also complicated as they did not have a home or apartment. One of my favorite sayings is you reap what you sow and finally after breaking into multiple innocent people's homes, Todd was arrested. One little fact that I found very interesting was the Seattle Times stated, this the same judge who sentenced Todd for the burglaries was also the same person who married Todd and Gail in October of 1988. Gail said they chose the same judge because she wanted to prove to the judge they could amount to something. And let me tell you, Todd did amount to something. A kill- after his release, they would crash at a friend's home and would pitch a tent in their yard, calling that home for the next few days. Todd worked his first job at a Sizzler restaurant, and then as a fruit distributor, and then at a Safeway store. Honestly, I'm not going to judge him for being a job hopper because me, when I first moved into the town that I live in currently, I worked at Cracker Barrel, then Chili's, then Chick-fil-A, then Old Navy, all in a span of two years. So I cannot judge him for job hopping. The only defense I can give myself was I was a very stressed out college student who struggled to balance work, life, and school. So please don't come at me for being a job hopper. Speaking of personal life, Todd eventually adapted the hobby of writing poems and reading them in coffee shops, which was something I did not expect to read while doing my research. And his poems were not what you would think. They weren't sunshine and rainbows, but they were of a deep longing. I think that it is very interesting that he did write poems, and I'd be very curious to read them because it might provide some insight as to what was going in his mind at that time. The closest thing I could find to his poems was a discussion post made on May 8th of 2000. It was written by Joe One Orbit, and they stated, quote, looks like Todd was no doubt, still is, another one of those profoundly enraged serial killers who also perfected his acting and lying skills so that he could come across as being a quiet, harmless, and even charming to many different folks. 
We know he was a voracious reader and a poetry writer. Once again, sensitive and artistic. So many serial killers fit this specific criteria being both sensitive and artistically creative slash talented. It's quite amazing when you consider how few members of the general public paint, draw, or write on a regular basis, and how many serial killers choose to perform these two artistic endeavors, end quote. I've added a link to the full discussion post in the description of my video, but let me add what Joe said at the end of his discussion. He wrote, stay strong, Todd, take care, dash, Joe. Joe, what the f***? When I first read this, I was sitting in a coffee shop and my jaw literally hit the floor and I was so mad. Cause yeah, stay strong, Todd. I know that you killed at least three people, not even counting the two others you're suspected of unaliving or killing or whatever I can say, but just stay strong. I know you're in that cold cell and you deserve to be free from life and from all this pain and all this bull crap. Joe, I really hope that since you posted that story in 2000 to 23 years later to this day, that you have grown your frontal lobe and actually got a brain and sense for yourself to realize that Todd is a brutal killer and deserves nothing but life in prison. <sighs> I digress, and I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's get back onto track. Todd and Gail had two children together and were determined to raise them well. Though Gail noticed that as years went on, Todd began to pull further and further away from her and their children. He was working the night shift, which meant he would see Gail during the day, but she talks about how he would show little interest in her or their kids. He also developed a severe porn addiction and would go as far as hiding the magazines from her, but he didn't hide them well as she would constantly find them while she was cleaning. What really put a nail in the coffin was when she received their phone bill and at that time it would show you the numbers that you called and when she did a little investigation on those numbers that showed up on the bill, she found that he was in contact with sex lines, which I'm not too familiar with, but I guess sex lines are where you just call to somebody and they flirt with you on the phone until you finish your thing that you're doing. <laughs> Moving on. On November 3rd, 1992, 25-year-old Shelly Harding met Todd Reed for the first time while she was on the street in Portland, Oregon. Her life was forever changed from that day forward. This is her story. My name is Shelly Harding. I'm 55 years old. In 1992, I was abducted by Todd Allen Reed, the Forest Park killer, and I am the one that got away. When was the first time that he was, that you encountered him? It was uh, the night that he abducted me. Just start from the beginning, start from day one and go from there. I was stranded, there were uh, no buses running. Um, it was at night and from the moment he pulled up, like I just didn't listen to my gut. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, um, I just got bad vibes. And then I looked in the car and I seen like a couple baby seats and I thought, oh, and he, you know, he presents to look kind of nerdy and I went against my, my gut and got in the car and, you know, within like five blocks of driving with him, like his whole demeanor changed, you know, he, uh, locked the doors and, then he immediately pulled over in like a heavily residential area. He uh, tied me up, essayed me, and then, you know, there started being kind of people around and he got freaked out. And so he, we left that location. You know, I, I grew up with older brothers, like I'm a pretty tough girl and I can defend myself and take care of myself, you know? And at first I was just like, 
you know, saying, yelling and screaming at him and, and you know, cursing him out. And then all of a sudden we were at this light and we were in this car and I'm like, oh, this is my saving grace. Like, you know, I'm free. And these two gentlemen walked up and at that time, I didn't know they didn't see me like tied up in the seat. And then as soon as they got up to the car, he drove off. And mm. then- um, With you inside of it still? Yeah, and they start chasing us. And so we're going around this in Portland, it's called Mount Tabor and it's a really windy mountain and he's just driving all erratic. And that's the part in the show where I say, you know, I'm, I figured we were gonna get in a car wreck. He was like gonna kill me. You know, then we stopped at a light. When we went through the light, then they just took off. Well, they had gotten his license plate and they were just gonna report it. And then he takes me to this other location and I, you know, I just remember like this dark road and this like house off in the distance with this light and like just thinking like, you know, if I could just get to that house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have said, oh, you're brave, blah, 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 or whatever. I just, I-, I was pregnant. I did what any mom would do. And so had seen how, you know, trying to fight back didn't work. So I thought, okay, just try to use reverse psychology, you know, act like you like him, act like you want to be here. So I started like talking calmly to him, trying to tell him, oh, I I know you're a nice guy. And he started telling me about his marital problems. And, you know, I tried to empathize with him and just like, you know, be like docile. I just made sure I put my fingerprints everywhere in the car Mm -hmm. because, you know, we did use protection and, um, and then I just memorized everything. There was like a Chinese food menu in the door. There was like a Toys R Us ad on the on the bottom seat, you know. He uh, sought me again. Afterwards, he started crying. But he wasn't crying because he felt bad. He was crying because he realized, oh, we'd gotten this accident. Somebody probably seen her in my car. Now I can't kill her. I just promised him, just drop me off where he found me. Like, I won't report you. I won't do anything. Like, And he had told me, oh, well, this isn't my car. I changed the plates. You'll never you know, be able to track me down anyway. When he dropped me off, I immediately called 911 and they sent an ambulance, you know, and I reported it. You know, the case ensued and stuff. I went to the hospital, you know, I'll let you know that, you know, I struggled with substance abuse at that time. I mean, this this whole thing though, saved my life. According to reports, he lured her in his car and then he held her at knife point, forcing her to perform oral sex to him as he fastened the seatbelt around her neck. Yes, this is why I issued the trigger warning because that is one of the most vile things I've ever read in my career of talking about true crime. Not only was she fearing for her life, but she was also fearing for the life of her child. I'm sure what only was minutes felt like hours for her and I feel so bad for her. Even though it happened almost 30 years ago, my heart still broke for her. Honestly, that story is making me very emotional, so I think I'm going to take a moment to just kind of debrief, let out some emotions, and I'll be right back. I am back and fully equipped to finish this sinister story. A brief side note that I want to shed some light on is if you noticed, so far in the video I have muted myself on some of the words I have said. The reasoning why I'm doing that is to comply with community guidelines that YouTube has set for me. And a lot of the words that they have on there that I cannot say are words that I need to say to make the story make sense. So that is why I still say them and usually just bleep it out to where you can kind of hear the word. Or instead of saying the K word, I'll just say like unaliving. But I wanted you guys to know that I'm doing this not because I want to be censoring it but more so because I need to comply with the guidelines. I hate it, it's annoying, but 
It's something that has to be done, so let's move on. It's a couple days later and my background is different because when I'm stressed, I clean and rearrange. I did that because this story is literally the most stress-inducing story I've ever talked about in my entire career of talking about true crime. I said that before I left and I'm saying that now. Getting back onto the rails and to add to Shelly's story, Todd was involved in a minor fender bender and rear-rented a car and because he had a kidnapped pregnant woman in his car, he immediately drove off. That is when the men involved in the accident wrote down Todd's license plate number after he fled. When she was released from his vehicle, she was accompanied by Detective Dave Schley Shelly told Dave about how Todd had been in an accident and drove off. That led him to begin searching all hit and runs from that day forward. And he eventually found the two men that Todd hit and thank God for these two men because they wrote down Todd's license plate number. That led Dave to search up the license plate number, find the vehicle, and locate who it was registered to being Todd Allen Reed, and then going to his address. In the interview with Shelly, she mentioned how she was touching basically everything she could find in the car to get her fingerprints on that, and that helped the case immensely. When police got to the car, they were able to find the DNA fingerprints from Shelly and locate it back to her to prove that she was a passenger in that car. He was arrested on charges of hit and run and R-word. To avoid trial, he pled guilty to gain a lesser sentencing, and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. However, three years later, in 1995, he was released. <sighs> you would think police would call Shelly and notify her that the man that kidnapped her and brutally essayed her was getting released just three years later. However, they did not do that because why would they do that? I was sitting in a restaurant with one of my friends and he walked by me and I looked at my friend. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? You know, it was almost like they talk about a Christmas story, like all the ghosts of past come in, you know, and it's like, you know what? I'm not pregnant and I'm not tied up. And I just chased him like I was a track star in school out of the restaurant, you know, and he's a big guy. He's probably at least six two. He's a big guy. And he ran like, like, just like the coward that he is. And he had some woman driving the car and I was like, what? Don't act like you don't know me, you know? And I was like, you tried to kill me. You tried to kill me. You didn't do it. You know, and I, and, and I was screaming lots of obscenities and he gets in the car with just this terrified look, locks the door and like stares straight ahead and they like speed out of there. You know, it's like, he's just a coward. I'm going to leave that at that, but I just want to add, I can only imagine the fear that Shelly felt when she first saw the face of the man that essayed her in person, especially considering she was under the impression he was going to be in jail for nine more years. After his release in 1995, you'd think that Gail had enough. Let's be honest, her husband has a porn addiction, he's making calls to sex lines, and he has now been arrested for R-wording a pregnant woman who was completely innocent. So you think, I don't know, maybe she would get a divorce, but nope, she did not get a divorce as soon as he was released. Finally, in 1997, two years after he was released from jail, the couple divorced and Todd was 30 at the time. I don't know what took Gail so long, but I won't blame her as I can speculate Gail was also the victim in all of this. After the divorce, Todd was required to pay monthly child support and he must 
must not have been that horrible of a father to his children, being the court granted him visitation rights for his two children every other weekend. Though, I don't think the system is always thorough with their investigative skills. Now that Todd was living on his own and no longer with his family, that is when all hell broke loose. Shortly after, sex workers and homeless women had began to disappear in what seemed to be thin air and would shortly turn up brutally unalived. 28-year-old Lila Faye Moeller was a homeless sex worker who suffered from manic depression. She had previous convictions for drug use and prostitution. Yes, these are very important details about Lila. However, her addiction issues was not who she was as a person, despite having all these articles only saying that she was a sex worker and drug addict. There's so much more to a person than what they struggle with. Shelly actually considered Lila as her best friend, so I want to turn it over to her image on who Lila was was as a person. Her name was Lila Moeller. I actually first met her in rehab. You know, Lila just, she was one of those people that had a laugh that was like just infectious. She was this beautiful little redhead. She had a hard life and you know, at a young age, she met people that didn't have her best interest in mind that were a lot older than her and, you know, got her into a lifestyle that I don't think she chose, but that she was in, in, in love with this man. And she wrote gospel songs and she wrote children's books. She was really smart and um, she was fiery. And when you were her friend, she loved you with her whole heart. You know, I would see those glimpses of where she would get her life together and, um, be doing well and she loved her son so much and he was the light of her life you know fortunately she had a, a family that could help take care of him when she couldn't you know she had a lot of stuff to heal from mental illness and addiction go hand in hand and i think you know she didn't get a handle on her demons in april of 1999 lila went missing when it comes to individuals living on the street, it is not uncommon for them to move around and appear missing from time to time. Shelley claimed that she knew something bad had happened after not one week, but two weeks had gone by and she heard nothing from Lila. No check-ins, no phone calls, nothing. On May 7th of that same year, a couple had decided to take their dog to Forest Park to experience the vast array of nature. According to the Forest Park website, they state, quote, Forest Park at 5,200 acres provides critical refuge for hundreds of native wildlife and plant species and acts as an important air and water filter. With more than 80 miles of trails, it also provides invaluable access to nature, exercise, and educational opportunities for the region." End quote. While the couple was walking their dog, they noticed a spot by some trees that was suspiciously covered with random branches and leaves. When they lifted one of the branches, their lives were changed forever and they immediately called 911. When authorities arrived, they saw the now deceased body of 28-year-old Lila Moeller. After further investigation, they ruled that she had been essayed and was strangled to death. 
28 feet away from her lifeless body laid a very important piece of evidence. A condom containing the perpetrator's DNA. Not sure if I can say that word, so if it's bleeped out, I'm basically referring to a protective device that men use to not get women pregnant, and inside of that held very important DNA that could solve who did this act. When something as sinister as a body being dumped in the middle of the woods occurs, it is typical for police to search these surrounding areas to make sure there isn't any additional evidence they can recover. While performing the search, police didn't find additional evidence. No, they found an entirely different body. Police recovered the lifeless body of who is now known as 26-year-old Stephanie Lynn Russell, who was also a homeless sex worker and was friends with Lila. Not only were these two victims close friends, but Stephanie's body was found only a quarter mile away from Lila's. She had also been essayed and strangled, just like Lila. Notice the similarity? Do you smell that? I think I smell a serial killer. My first thoughts when researching this case was did they get kidnapped together because that could be huge evidence to imply that there may be multiple people involved, especially because it's very challenging for one individual to kidnap two individuals. But upon further investigating, they determined that Lila had been unalived longer and Stephanie had only been recently unalived, likely within a week of being found. The same day of finding the two young females, the news released a story. Susan Eisen had been watching the news and that same day had decided to submit a missing persons report on her daughter, 17-year-old Alexandria Nicole Eisen. A little bit about Alexandria was when she was 12 years old, that's when she developed the habit of running away, especially because she was bullied at school. She didn't want to go to school and she didn't want to be at home. It is also believed that in the midst of her running away, that is when she developed her substance abuse issues. On an episode of Shattered, her mother claimed that even though she would run away, she would always come back. Alexandria had left again and despite not telling her mother where she was, she would still periodically call her from time to time to let her know that she was okay. In May of 1999, her mother knew something bad had happened as all contact with Alexandria was cut off completely. On June 2nd, 1999, a hiker was on a trail at Forest Park. I think you know where this is going. And that is where he noticed the decayed body of Alexandria. According to police, the area hadn't been fully searched by authorities the previous month. When they arrived on the scene, they saw that her body had been dumped down a steep hill only a quarter mile away from the other two bodies. Another correlation is Alexandria had also been essayed and to death. This is where I speak my mind and you might think it's either logical or I just need to calm down. Maybe a little bit of both. If this case is so recent considering that only a month had gone by since the other two unalivings and police claimed that they hadn't searched the entire area, don't you think they should have closed the park down? Like there could be more evidence or even other bodies, especially considering they found two bodies to begin with and the second body they were looking for evidence and stumbled upon that one. So that leaves me to think, hey, maybe they should be thinking, hmm, I don't know, there might be other bodies in this forest. <sighs> I know the police could have been short on help, such as resources, people, money, all of that stuff when it comes to finding more search team efforts. I think the least they could have done is close off that park. At this point of the case, Detective Schlegel had made a call to Shelly and asked if she had heard about the three girls that were brutally unalive. She had told him yes and that she was actually best friends with one of the victims involved. That is when Dave told her that Shelly needs to spread the word to her friends that if anyone knows anything to come to 
to him. I think it's very effective that Dave talked to Shelly about spreading the word to gain trust on Dave, especially because people who are living on the street already are hesitant when it comes to police and trusting that they have good intentions, especially because a lot of the times they screw them over. And I came from, you know, a culture of you don't call the cops, you don't kick it with the cops, you don't trust the cops, you know, and and that man helped me get sober. He was on rank detail uh, when my case happened. That is why Dave made it apparent that he did not care if these potential witnesses had any warrants or prior charges. He did not care about that. What he did care about is whoever this brutal killer was that they get caught before another round of women turn up dead. If you've not already pieced all of this together, it's very apparent that these three victims all have something in common. They have all experienced homelessness and two of these people are sex workers. With that being said, Detective Schlegel set a trap so good that the would have to fall into it. On July 7th, 1999, a female police officer posed as a sex worker in hopes of luring out the suspect. The police department even went the extra mile to dress the officer up to look like the physical preferences he could have had in the other three victims. Todd Allen Reed was then observed stalking the officer and to make things even more perfect, one of the officers that was on lookout duty recognized Todd from an earlier conviction for burglary and assault. He pulled up to this police decoy and and the decoy was like it didn't feel right so she didn't get in the car. And so when the female decoy didn't get in the car with Todd Reed, they followed him and they saw him sitting across the street watching this decoy and they're like, this guy's like a hunter. And so when they pulled up to see him parked along the street, my detective looked in and saw him and he was like, oh my God, all the hair on my neck stood up. It was like a siren went off. You know, Shelly and the other home break-ins, yeah, this is karma. You reap what you sow, Todd. I love when you were able to witness the full circle of karma come back around. Though the case had a little bit of a speed bump because it is not technically illegal to stalk people, though I think it should be because that's just plain weird. Especially because I feel that those who stalk innocent individuals have nothing but ill intent but that's just my thoughts. Because it's technically not illegal to stalk people, police could not arrest Todd. But let me tell you, Todd went from being a nobody to being their number one suspect, even though in my opinion, Todd is still a nobody to this day. <laughs> and do you remember that protective device that keeps women from getting pregnant that had all of that DNA inside of it? Yes. Somehow, some way, I don't know how police did this, but they got DNA from Todd and they tested it with the DNA found in the condom and it was a 100% match. And now we celebrate because on July 18th of that year, he was finally arrested. He was no longer able to commit God knows how many more unalivings he had planned to do. On February 23rd, 2001, he pleaded guilty to the three murders in order to avoid the death penalty and was sentenced to three consecutive consecutive life sentences. Which to me, that's music to my ears because as you guys know, I firmly believe that if you take someone's life, you deserve at minimum life in prison. Sorry, I don't know what I'm doing with my fingers right here. I, it's just, it's how I get my point across. I remember somebody came to visit me and they said, they caught him, they caught him. And I'm like, well, who is it? And said Todd Allen Reed and like, 
I just remember feeling like my whole body shot out of my skin. Like I've never mm -hmm. had shock like that. Since everything has happened, you mentioned that you have gotten clean, which is amazing. You're in school now. How has your life changed from that moment to now? Um, well, I became a social worker. Um, I spent years in child welfare helping women and children. Now I um, am working in a homeless shelter because we're, we're pretty famous for, you know, a huge, um, uh, sorry, houseless population. It saved my life. You know, I realized that I'm not bulletproof and it just gave me just the tenacity and a fire for protecting women and especially children. Forgiveness doesn't, is a gift I gave myself it doesn't exonerate or excuses behavior but it says that it no longer controls me what i've been doing since you tried to murder me is i met the man of my dreams i raised my children i've been to college i've got to play roller derby i've got to meet athletes rock stars and i'm living my best life mm -hmm. you know you didn't break me i took the most horrible thing that's ever happened to me and i made it through and if i can make it through that I can make it through anything in life. Nothing in life is worse than that. Everything else has been gravy. When something so severe and so sinister happens to someone, they can either let that break them or they could use that as a leverage to soar. And from what you've talked with me about, it seems like you're soaring and that is awesome. I hate that you've been through the things that you've been through, but also I want to acknowledge and give honor when honor is due at the fact that you are a rock star, you got clean, you're a social worker, you're in school, you've done so much. If you could say something to people who are watching, what would that be? Watch your back, be aware of your surroundings. Like if you ever feel in, the, the biggest thing, if, if, if it feels bad in your gut, like go with that. Now, this is where the story should end, right? Nope. Go ahead and get some pasta and put it on your skin because what I'm about to tell you is going to make you so enraged, so mad that your skin is going to boil so much so you could cook pasta on it. It is believed that he is also responsible for two other suspicious murders. The first one is 15-year-old Jennifer Lynn Cher. I want to emphasize on the 15-year-old part because that is literally a child. She went missing on July 3rd, 1987, but get this. She was last seen with Todd Allen Reed's then-girlfriend Gail Bennett. <gasps> this literally gets me so frazzled. I don't, I don't even know what to think at this point. On July 18th, 1988, a biology student that attended Mount Hood Community College in Gresham, Oregon, found a human shin and heel bone, and over a period of one week, they had discovered enough skeletal remains that they could build a complete skeleton. The remains were later pinned back to 15-year-old Jennifer. Now, the area is not in Portland, Oregon, but it is only a 23-minute drive, so they basically are in the same area in terms of travel. Also, I should note that the medical examiner's office labeled that Jennifer had suffocated to death. Hmm, that sounds kind of like the other three people that were unalived. Because the body parts were so spread out, they were unable to determine if she had been essayed or not, but it was clear she had been strangled. The second potential victim tied to Todd was 12-year-old Mindy Colleen Thomas. 
Let me emphasize on the 12-year-old part again. That is even more of a child. She had apparently disappeared from her parents' apartment complex in the same town just one month after Jennifer's disappearance. She was missing on August 3rd, 1987. Oh, and get this. She was last seen in company of Gail Bennett. Gail, what are you doing? In October of that same year, a hiker found her decayed body near a hiking trail close to Mount Hood Community College. The investigator also declared that she had been strangled to death. So these two individuals are in the same spot remotely and they have both been strangled at minimum. You know who else was strangled just a few years after these unalivings happened? the three other victims unalived by Todd Allen Reed. But before I go off a tangent, let me continue. Todd was questioned about the two very similar unalivings as he was the perfect suspect for these, but to this day, he has yet to have either confessed or been charged. Has Gil been questioned? From what I can see, zero reports say that she had been questioned. Gail Bennett, his wife Gail Bennett was the last person to be seen with them. I had a woman reach out to me a few years back that was best friends with one of those girls that went missing. New Gail, new Todd, believes Gail is totally involved in all this. This is like, this is one of the reasons why I want this story out there. Why hasn't she been investigated? How come all these years later, no DNA has been Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and I met those when we went to trial, all those families were in the DA's office. Like we were all there, you know, and I just remember, why don't these families get justice? So now I'm left with this question. Is Gail a victim or was she the helping hand of Todd committing these brutal Killings. I also want to add the fact that she was 15 years old when she met Todd Allen Reed, so she was a very impressionable child who probably just wanted to please her boyfriend that she was in love with and all the butterflies and all that bull crap. So yes, in a way, she is still a victim, and I'm also not saying that she, you know, helped strangle these women and helped Todd essay these women. I'm not saying any of that. Why was Gail the last person to be with these two children on separate occasions that both went missing and turned up dead? Like literally the entire time I was reading this, the one thing that kept going through my mind is what were you doing, Gail? What was going through your head? You are a mother. If you are helping this, you know that these parents are worried sick about their missing kids and to find that their kid had been strangled to death, that's, that's beyond me. Honestly, I had planned to paint the picture that Gail was a victim and just got wrapped up in Todd's horrendous actions. But the more I researched this case, the more I feel she had something to do with this. Allegedly. What is even more suspicious is no one knows where Todd Allen Reed is staying or even if he is alive. Going on to Todd, I did a little just surface level digging. Is he still alive to this day? So the interesting part of the story is, you know, once once he got to prison, he wasn't liked and he was assaulted and he got moved to another prison. And it's funny, the people that assaulted him, I didn't know, and now I've met through my recovery community. Uh, they would never tell us what they did with him. He got moved to another prison in Oregon, was not well-received and was uh, assaulted there. And so he got a hold of the district attorney and said, I fear for my life. They have him hid in a prison in New Jersey right now. The fact that he says that he feared for his life, being that he's a man who took at least three people's lives, more because there's two other people that he could be convicted of killing. It mind boggles me. I was just doing research on a case. This woman had killed her husband, hid him in the basement, and she was sentenced to only 25 years in prison. 
And she had the audacity to tell the judge that she felt that her sentencing was too extreme, which blows my mind when somebody who has the conscience of knowing that they took someone who is innocent's life, they took it and they expect to get anything less than 25 years or anything less than life in prison. If you take someone's life, you deserve life, period. There are times where it's like up to up for debate, but in terms of Todd, he needs life in prison. I know I threw in some last second thoughts that might leave you with more questions than answers, and I promise you I'm feeling the exact same way. I personally don't want to think that Gail had a hand in helping Todd unalive these three, potentially five dead women. Maybe I have too much faith in humanity, but I just feel that a woman who has children of her own would not do such a horrendous act. And to be clear, all of the information I have on Gail is alleged. I would love to go into a deep dive in her case and just research as if she has been questioned by police, but from all of the reports I've researched, she has not been questioned, and there are no facts as to if she has been involved in any of these crimes. The only information that I have connecting towards Gail was those two girls, Jennifer and Mindy, that were last seen with Gail. The sad thing about this case is it doesn't appear that anything else is going to be done. I know he's going to spend life in prison for the rest of his life, but the families of Jennifer and Mindy have still not received closure all these years later as to who ripped their daughters away from them. And that is everything on Todd Allen Reed, otherwise known as the Forest Park <sighs> that was a far, far, far rabbit hole that I fell into. My next episode is set to go live next, next Sunday. I want to preface that this video took me several days from where I started at 9 in the morning and worked all the way until 1 in the morning. With that being said, please follow my Instagram just in case if I have to delay the next episode because I'm going to pour as much blood, sweat, and tears, if not more, into this next episode. You guys are not ready. I already have the topic in my brain, which I think I'm doing. You're just not ready for it. If you enjoyed this video, like, subscribe, and consider supporting me by becoming a member today or leaving me a little tip to get me some coffee. Because let me be very transparent with you guys. If it wasn't for caffeine, this video would not be live right now. I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Like I said, if you're a member, comment down some cases you would like me to talk about. Also, if you are a victim of a case, please email me crimebrought2light at gmail.com and we could orchestrate an interview. Without further ado, I will see you guys next, next Sunday. Stay safe. Even though in my opinion, Todd is still a nobody to this day.